Hello and welcome to the 43rd episode of Tailoring in Conversation. My name is Reza and in this series I'll be talking to tailors, business owners, cloth merchants and other industry participants from all around the globe to gain a better insight into their worlds. My guest for today is John Moore. John is a British couturier specializing in women's wear. He began his career as a fashion design student at Kingston University in the mid-70s and worked his way up to becoming the design director at Hardy Amy's. He now has his own private clients and students, and in our conversation for today, we're going to be talking about his background, his time at Hardy Amy's, the differences between couture and men's tailoring, the influences of clients on the creative process, and much more. Let's go. Good morning, John. Thank you for uh, making the time. I've, uh, I've, I'm having the pleasure of speaking with you. Uh, we've had some conversations going back and forth in the, I think, the last two years, I believe. Yeah. So now I have the chance to speak with you. And uh, let me start by asking you how you're doing. I'm doing fine, thank you very much. Um, the sun's actually shining this morning, thank goodness. It it is, it is. Well, it's I, I'm leaving to um, to Croatia tomorrow, wow. so this is my last day of of working uh, for this kind of like uh, last two years almost. Um, so I, I am pretty much looking forward to that. Are you at your studio or at home at, at the moment? I'm at my studio at home. A studio at home. Same here. Same here. <laughs> So, so John, um, what I'd like to do is, is uh, get into a few topics that I'm very curious about. And uh, you have, uh, let's say, a good few years of, uh, of being in the industry of, of handmade garment making, in the, spe- specifically couture. And, uh, but you also have been on, um, on a company that has also had connections and was on Savile Row, which was Hardy Amy's. But before we get into those uh, topics, uh, could you very briefly give us an overview of uh, where you started, where you went, how, how the, the, the John Moore time, career timeline kind of uh, is, so that we have a better understanding of um, where we're going? Well, I guess, to be honest, the whole thing started with my mother. Mm-hmm. She was a needlework teacher. Um, right. And I then discovered actually lots of my great aunts were all dressmakers, tailoresses, shoemakers. Uh, the whole mm-hmm. family came from Norwich, so there was a big basis there. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, you only find that later on. Um, I think my mother's generation thought that um, hand skills and hand works were rather demeaning. And, uh, right. and why was that? Because she was encouraged to go and work in an office, which was more of a proper job. Um, right, right. <laughs> So I, um, I, went, I went to a very traditional grammar school and was studying very traditional A-levels. And mm. then I happened to stumble across a wonderful lady called Jill Jeffries, um, mm. who had been a costume and theatre designer at Stratford-upon-Avon mm. at the um, Royal mm-hmm. And it was her first teaching job. Um, and where I was living, they decided to set up a sixth form college. So all the sixth formers moved out of their various schools and we all mm-hmm. went up to the sixth form college and I was the first year intake. So it was a brand new mm-hmm. school, which was great. And we had to do what were described as supplementary studies alongside our A-levels to broaden our mm-hmm. education. <clears throat> Little did they know what was going to happen. <laughs> so I took Jill's class, which was I think theater and costume design as an mm-hmm. afterthought, because the ones I wanted to get into were full. So that's mm-hmm. how 
peculiar this whole thing is. And I did two um, two semesters with her doing this. And I think it was during the second term, she turned around to me and said, haven't you ever thought of becoming a fashion designer? Mm-hmm. And of course, the answer to that question was no. Mm-hmm. I mean, my whole education had not been geared towards doing that. My whole mm-hmm. education was geared to going the opposite direction um, towards a university education. And mm-hmm. I think my parents wanted me to become a bank manager or maybe work in an insurance company. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, when, when, when she asked you about being a fashion designer, was that synonymous to a couturier or were those things separate at the time? I had no idea at that point about the differential mm-hmm. of that. I suppose at that time I was, <clears throat> I was aware of people like Calvin Klein, Valentina, mm-hmm. Salomon. Um, mm-hmm. This was ooh, 1974. Mm-hmm. all that sort of time. Um, so Calvin Klein was really starting to make a noise in America at that point with his new ready-to-wear sort of sportswear sort of type. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so no, I had no idea about couture at all. And it was just an opportunity for what about fashion? Um, mm-hmm. And I jumped at the chance. So I then went off and did a dressmaking A-level Mm-hmm. alongside my English history and geography. <laughs> right, right, right. What a great combination. It was, yes, absolutely. And I was really cross I got a B rather than an A, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then again, Jill was marvellous because the Sixth Form College had no idea how to get anyone into an art school. Not a clue. Mm-hmm. It was all geared towards university placement. That was what it was all about. So I was a complete maverick. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, my parents insisted that I applied for university places alongside applying for fashion school because mm-hmm. they were really concerned that this was a dead end and I wasn't going to go anywhere. <clears throat> right, right, right. They were really, really what, enthusiastic. Uh, <laughs> so, so do you think that the, the concern they had was because it was really a very difficult and, let's say, uh, non-prosperous uh, direction to go to, or was that their perception? I think it was, it was two parts to that. I think, um, I think, yes, they felt it was a precarious route to take. And mm. certainly back then, when I went to this technical college to do my art A-level, there was a mm-hmm. huge piece in the local press Mm-hmm. only boy taking needlework i mean oh wow <laughs> that was that was where it was at back then and, yeah yeah um so i i got to um jill managed to move it, or move it all around anyway i ended up going to kingston polytechnic um mm-hmm. which had a really really good reputation as a fashion course i mm-hmm. had I'd applied to st martin's and got into the foundation mm-hmm. course but i couldn't get mm-hmm. onto the um I couldn't get a, a grant to go. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. local authority in Solihull, where I was living, said they had a foundation course at the Solihull Technical College, and I could mm-hmm. do it there. And mm-hmm. I couldn't explain to them that it was a huge difference going to St. Martin's than going to the local tech, but they wouldn't have it, so mm-hmm. couldn't do that. So again, Jill was wonderful. She was not to be beaten. And uh, she said, oh, well, we'll just apply straight to the degree course. Why not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. because she had no idea and yeah. it was completely green. She just mm-hmm. tried things that no one else would have ever done. So mm-hmm. I went off to Kingston with my suitcase full of clothes and patterns and all the stuff. And they offered me a place. 
And right. I was the I was the first student they'd ever taken without a foundation course. <clears throat> right. So they actually also took another student on at the same mm. time as a sort of balance to see uh -huh. if both failed, then obviously this was a bad idea. Uh -huh. interesting. But if one succeeded and the other one didn't, then it would, you know, it was down to mm -hmm. the individual. I see, I see. Well, it's a good, it's a good way of, of uh, I mean, seeing what works. Yeah, I think uh, it was yeah. a, a sensible approach from their point of view. <clears throat> and in mm -hmm. actual fact, from my point of view, um, Kingston was a much better fit, in actual mm -hmm. fact, than St. Martin's. In what ways, would you well, say? Because I didn't have any art background mm -hmm. because of my education. That had all been squeezed out long ago. You know, no, no, <laughs> you can do art or chemistry or you can do something, yeah. maths. You know, it was just all those choices were quietly and subtly just pushed away. So it just ended mm -hmm. up with, um, you know, pure academic classes. Um, so the great thing with Kingston particularly at that time, was Kingston had a style. Mm -hmm. It was a very oh. strong style. And you could mm -hmm. tell Kingston students and Kingston drawings because there was this very, very strong graphic style, mm -hmm. which you could learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> whereas St. Martin's was a much more arty course and much freer, this, I see. this sort of this more constrained way of doing it was suited me fine because it meant you could learn the technique to do these drawings. We mm -hmm. used um, rotary mapping pens to yeah, yeah. all the line drawing. The yeah. computerization, of course, in those days, it was all done by hand. Yes. Um, and, uh, and Pantone pens were the, were the thing to give blocks of flat color. So, wow. so you, could, you could learn that technique, which I did. So that got around my inability mm -hmm. to draw very well. I see, I see. What I, what I was good at and always have been good at is working three-dimensionally. I see, I see. Which, you know, working as a tailor or a dressmaker yeah. is important because you need to yeah. know that a body has depth as well as width. So mm -hmm. that, that worked out fine. And the other good thing about Kingston was it was, well, it was actually one of the things that was held against it slightly. It was described as a, with a slight sneer, as a commercial fashion course. Oh. Why do you think that was? Oh, I think because there was this idea that fashion should be art. Right. And, and that's what you should be dealing with. Whereas the Kingston mm -hmm. course was, um, Daphne Brooke was head of the department and she was brilliant. And she always mm -hmm. insisted on talking about the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. You had mm -hmm. to deal with that. So, so do you think that uh, St. Martin's was trying to prepare students for the more creative and open aspect of, of everything, and Kingston was preparing them more for the practical, all-round professional aspect of, I of think it? Absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> Daphne was brilliant because she spent most of her time making contacts with industry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think every single... Um, project we did was linked up somehow or other with industry. Mm -hmm. So it was either a fabric supplier who was supplying the cloths or it was a, a thread manufacturer or a rainwear manufacturer. It was somebody. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, and, and of course, in hindsight, it was an incredibly clever trick because mm -hmm. not only 
did you get to know people in industry? Yes. People in industry got to know you. You, yes. So at the end of your three years, if you mm. needed it, you had a huge pool of people. Wow, yeah. That you'd worked with, for, presented mm. stuff to. So you could then, you know, chase them up and say, look, how about getting me a job? Yes, yes, yes. It was a, very, it was a really good way of doing it, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I think so too. I had a great time at, at Kingston. It was wonderful. And mm-hmm. that was where the couture thing came in. Right, okay. First. So that's the next chapter. Yes. So um, one of the uh, senior lecturers at Kingston was a guy called Richard Knott. Mm-hmm. Um, who had worked at Valentino. He had mm-hmm. been a Kingston student. He'd gone to work at Valentino and then he'd come back as a, as a lecturer at Kingston. I see. So he was the guy who taught me how to drape. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and uh, he was the one who he had that. He often talked about what they did at Valentino and how they did it. And, you know, mm-hmm. that. so that was my first introduction to that. Mm-hmm. And, um, then at the end of my first year, um, two of my dresses that I've made in my first year ended up in the final year collection. Right. Which right. was, again, quite unusual for a first year mm-hmm. to get something in the final year show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes, I did that, which was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, Richard must have lined someone up. Anyway, representatives from Valentino were at the show. And they offered me a job at the end of the three-year course. And what year was this? One. Uh, no, I mean, it, like 19... Oh, 1976. 76. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So I was going to graduate in 79. Okay, okay. So that was, that was the first time that the couture thing sort of popped up. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think what then happened was because the college knew I'd got this job placement at Valentino, mm-hmm. they allowed me to sort of drift into, Where to? <laughs> into a world of couture. <laughs> I see. That's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was sort of good, but of course it was also ultimately rather limiting because you were mm-hmm. narrowing your um, opportunities going forward. Was that because you had to choose for a specific firm and then... No, 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 no. Why would you say it was limiting? Well, because... Well, I'll tell you when I got to the end of it. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Limiting. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. You know, I, I drifted through my three years at Kingston, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I guess my approach got more and more sort of couturified, I suppose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of tailoring, double fast coats, um, I don't know, embroidered evening dresses, I mean, all sorts of things. In those days, also, we um, we did quite a bit of fur design with Saga Mink, mm-hmm. uh, and I won that twice. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, that was quite you know, it's nice to be able to put mink coats in your final collection. Yes, absolutely. So that was all great. And when I did get to my final collection, um, a great company called Jacob Schlapfer in Switzerland sponsored me mm. and gave me two beautiful pieces of um, Diamante encrusted fabrics. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I made a black Dublafas coat and a Dublafas evening jacket, and you know, mm-hmm. it was all it was all very lovely, but all quite rarefied. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, so that was all great, but um, during my time at college, I, of course, as the way these things happen, I met someone in London, and. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of my course, I decided I didn't want to go to Italy. I wanted to stay in London. Okay, okay. okay. Oops. <laughs> right. So that's why I say it was limiting, because then, of course, I made a decision, right, I didn't want to go to Valentino. Mm-hmm. But I had a collection and a sort of, you know, I'd gone down this very rarefied couture route. Mm-hmm. So, so I have a question. Mm-hmm. For, I, I would imagine that for most people... Uh, who are interested in fashion or, or interested in, in couture, but haven't solidified their style or their vision for their career, would would be very happy to, f- f- with a position at Valentino uh, at, at a time where it was actually very much active in the, the, the handmade couture stuff. Yeah. So yeah. How, how, how did you process the decision of not going there and rather staying in London? What were the what was what was the better option you had in London that made you not to go to Italy even if it was for like six months or something? Well, you make silly decisions when you're a child. So. <laughs> Do you regret the decision? Oh, I often question it up and down, up and down. What might have happened? What might not have happened? But mm-hmm. um, going forward, I think what ended up happening was great so I, okay okay i can't i can't complain but i guess i often wonder what would have happened had i gone mm-hmm. um okay okay so i don't know so um daphne of course was then presented with a problem because mm-hmm. the from the college's point of view of course it was terribly important to get students placed in prestigious jobs because it reflected mm-hmm. well on the course so the fact i wasn't going to take this job valentino was a problem um because that was a sort of a big star on her chart um yes so she sent me off for an interview at dior in london dior used to have a uh couture house in london mm-hmm. on conduit street it's where sketch is now right right um yeah and it was, it was run by a guy called jon lamberg mm-hmm. so i went and had an interview with jon lamberg um and i came back to kingston and said no i didn't want to work there i didn't like that either so mm-hmm. <laughs> um i think in desperation How- how come you didn't like Dior? Uh, Dior London at that time had closed its couture workrooms and it was definitely on oh. the way down. It was okay. Felt, okay. okay. It felt dead, quite frankly. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't feel like much of a live business and it just didn't mm-hmm. feel right. Um, so then in desperation, Daphne sent me off to Hardy Amy's. I see. I see. Okay. Okay. And how would you say? How would you describe Hardy Amy's at that time? When I w- I had no idea about it at all when I went in. I just took my portfolio and went off and found number fourteen Savile Row, and I just went in with my portfolio. Um, mm-hmm. Once I got in and was shown up to the studio, I met Ken Fleetwood, who was design director. Who, I was mm-hmm. going to be his assistant. Um, mm-hmm. The whole thing just felt like I'd come home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the studio mm-hmm. with bolts of fabric and dress stands, and it all just felt 
yeah, I recognize this world. <clears throat> I understand this. This, this is, this is fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you know, for me being on Salvador, I have heard stories about Hardy Amis, but uh, you know very well that the Hardy Amis today is pretty much non-existent. Well, than, I've gone entirely, sadly. Uh, yes, exactly. So, how how would you describe Hardy Amis at the time where you were going there every day at work? What was the atmosphere like? What were the daily jobs? Uh, uh, what were the dynamics like? And because uh, I'm really curious to know w what it was like at that time. Um, well, I joined in um, June '79, straight mm -hmm. after I finished college. I went straight to Hardy Amy's as a, a studio assistant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and luckily for me, I think the previous studio assistant, Jackie Marks, had also been a Kingston student. She'd also mm -hmm. worked at Valentino. So it was a curious sort of um, replication there. Um, mm -hmm. But Jackie's great skill was sketching. She did beautiful sketches. Um, mm -hmm. That wasn't my skill. So mm -hmm. Ken and I had to work out a way of working together. Um, mm -hmm. So what it turned out, what Ken actually could do, but he did masses and masses of sketches. He could sketch fantastically well. He had, weirdly, he had no idea really how to translate a sketch into a garment. So he didn't have the practical skills of pattern cutting or making no, that. No, and if he picked okay, up okay. a piece of fabric, he ended up sort of screwing it up into a ball. <laughs> so I'd always leap up and take the fabric off him and say, "No, I'll do that bit." And, um, right, right. So we worked out. We very quickly worked out a way of working together, which was very successful. So mm -hmm. um, that the house when I first got there in '79 was a marvelously exotic and peculiar place. Um, most of the vendors, the sales staff, were um, ladies, foreign ladies, spoke mm -hmm. French. Um, there was Madame Nina and Madame Lisette, and um, uh, I mean, they, it was it was a it was a funny place to start working as a as a twenty one year old. Most of the staff mm -hmm. were in their sixties, I suppose. Um, right, but it was. But it was, it was a beautiful, you might remember the building, it's a beautiful building built in um, 1724. Um, mm -hmm. Classic sort of couture house. We had the boutique on the ground floor, then you went upstairs and there was this huge, wonderful showroom and then the, um, the, the couture fitting rooms at the back. And then on the next floor up um, were the studios and Hardy's office next door. Mm -hmm. So I'd go upstairs to the studio every morning and um, deal with whatever it was I need to deal with first thing, have a chat with Ken. <clears throat> and then basically my day then started off with going around the workrooms and seeing what they were doing and what they were working on and whether what they were doing was what Ken and I thought they should be doing. Right. So when, when you were a, um, a design assistant or a studio assistant, mm -hmm. um, how did you know what work you had to do for that week or month how was the, who made the schedule what was it like Did, were you allowed to make your own schedule or someone made it for you what was that like well i was sort of shadowing ken quite a lot of the time and certainly when i first started i was doing that a lot mm -hmm. um, um and i think one of the first things ken did was said oh well, you can deal with the wedding dresses 
why specifically wedding dresses? Because they, I, I can imagine that they're difficult. No, not really. I don't know. They were fun to do, but <clears throat> I think um, Ken didn't want to be bothered with them. Oh, okay, okay. I I see, he found I it a bit of a bore. Well, he, he was happy to do the very grand weddings. Right. You know, if a duchess came in with her daughter, he'd be happy to deal with that. Yeah. This is so-and-so coming in from wherever. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was happy to let me get on with it. Okay, okay. And, and going back to your earlier question about what it was like, of mm. course, um, was it 79 or 80? Um, Margaret Thatcher mm -hmm. came into office. Right, right. And there was a huge sea change at that moment. Because, mm. of course, this was a couture house mm -hmm. dealing with wealthy clients. Mm -hmm. Well, this sea change of Margaret Thatcher coming in just brought a huge sort of, I don't know, enlivening, I suppose, of the, wow. of the business because suddenly all these people mm -hmm. um, felt, I don't know, um, re-energised, I suppose. I see, and I see. We, were, we started moving to the 80s where yeah, yeah. You know, money and show and glamour mm -hmm. and all of that suddenly became exciting. Mm -hmm. And there was a big revival at that moment in couture Generally, mm -hmm. of course, La Croix opened in Paris during the mm -hmm. 80s. I mean, there was a huge explosion and people were having parties and dinner parties and people wanted to get dressed up. Mm -hmm. So that was a great time to mm -hmm. be working there because it, it suddenly sort of burst into life, which was great mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, I can imagine, yes. Yes, so, so I, I got on with dealing with wedding dresses. That was sort of my first bit was yeah, yeah, yeah. do that. So you, you've also been design director mm -hmm. and you've worked your way up from, from studio assistant to design director. Now, is that something that happened because you focused on becoming the design director or did circumstances open their way to, for you to, to, to fall into that position? A bit of both. Okay. I pushed really, really hard in the first 10 years. You mm -hmm. know all about that sort of 10-year sort of um, gestation period as tailors and what have you. Um, mm -hmm. That seems to be a sort of benchmark. If you can do 10 years, then you sort of get a gold star and you can start moving forward. Um, right. So I pushed very, very hard. And in 89, I became a company director. I see, so I see. I'd moved then from studio assistant to women's wear designer, and in 89, I was made couture director. Okay, okay. And what were your responsibilities as couture director? Well, they were pretty much the same as they before. <laughs> it was just they had to think of a name to give me. But oh, right. <laughs> it meant I, could, I sat in on board meetings so I could see what was going on um, mm -hmm. on the business side. And, and that's... You was, you know, that's when the progression starts, where mm -hmm. in a weird way you start moving away from what you were actually trained to do uh -huh. and uh -huh. you start getting more involved in the business side of, of the business, the fashion mm -hmm. industry side of it. So you start to yeah. get more involved in that, which, mm -hmm. which was interesting because you felt frustrated outside of it you know, not being mm -hmm. able to influence what was going on. So it was mm -hmm. good to be able to get around the table. 
even yes. in reality, I couldn't do very much when I was around the table, but at least you were sitting mm -hmm. there listening to the conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And do you think that the all the years that you spent there observing the clientele, observing the work, working with your colleagues, uh, like every company has politics, you know, navigating yourself through the politics of it, seeing society develop. Do you think that those things prepared you for the role of couture director uh, from oh, a business uh, aspect? Absolutely. Totally. Yes. So how did those things prepare you? Because you, you, it wasn't that you went to business school and then became couture director. Um, well, importantly, of course, starting to deal with clients, um, prepares you for that you build up your um your negotiating skills i mean mm -hmm. uh, as as uh, as the couture at hardy amy's it was up to me to design the dress for the client find the fabrics mm -hmm. work out the price mm -hmm. tell the client mm -hmm. how much it was going to cost negotiate right. with the client to get them to agree to pay um mm -hmm. you know, all of that was all part of the job um mm -hmm. so you had to negate you had to get quite clever at um mm -hmm. you know negotiating and, and dealing with all of this so that set you up very well going forward mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. it was um it was a, a, a good um uh, training ground and mm -hmm. you needed to be um a psychiatrist and a diplomat <clears throat> Yeah, that's yes, that's very well said. So, so John, do you think that um, for a company at that time, like Hardy Amy's, where you were a, a director, do you think that you would have been a better director had you been a like solely a businessman? Or do you think that the fact that you knew all, all the work and all the details that goes on into the creative side and the production side is even more important than just being a business savvy person? I wish I'd known more about the business side. Okay, okay. okay. I wish I had more, I wish in hindsight I'd known much more about the business, how that, and do you, that worked and... Can, can you specify how the boardroom worked and how you negotiated in a boardroom and, and all that uh -huh. sort of thing would have been real if I'd had more knowledge of that, it would be so I had to just sort of learn on my feet and yes, you know, find out, you know, suddenly you were presented with a set of accounts and you know, yeah. and, and other directors would be quite happy to make you feel uncomfortable and ask you questions about the accounts. <laughs> You know, yeah, well, I've never been a theatre accounts before, so how am I supposed to read this? What what's supposed to be going on here? But you learn mm -hmm. pretty fast. I see, I see, I see. Um, and a follow up question: Do you think that if if we speak about apprenticeships, um, do you think that apprentices who are engaged in just like a making side, like a maker's role, like a coat maker, trouser maker, whatsoever? Do you think that it's in the benefit of the businesses to teach those apprentices at least basic business skills specific to that company? I I am I saw your previous podcast when you were discussing apprentices, which I thought was really interesting, um, and I honestly think actually it would be helpful because okay. I don't think. A lot of times, those apprentices are sitting in the workrooms, feeling disgruntled and undervalued. Yes, I understand 
some of the pressures and constraints that the people who are employing them are having to deal with. Yes. The vast majority of our businesses are not flooded with money. Um, True. It's always an ongoing battle to keep the whole thing, the ship balanced. I mean, it's always, unfortunately, that's always been the case. And it was yeah. the case at Hardy Amy's. Um, so I think if, if, if those people were more aware of, of what was going on, then they might mm. be prepared to give people a little bit more uh, leeway. And I'm sure mm. the majority of those uh, trainees or apprentices, when they leave that job, and think, oh, I'm going to go and get a better job somewhere else. They find that, in actual fact, there yeah. are similar problems mm -hmm. where they go to the next job, or if mm -hmm. they start working for themselves, then they wake up and realize <laughs> what a lot of hard work there is. Yes, money. yes, yes. Well, you know, there is a dilemma that I don't, I don't know how this will be solved, but I think, I think it's worth thinking about is that. It, is, it isn't a secret that most apprentices and most trainees want more money and should get more money because the wages are very low and the, and the pay is very, very, very... Like for London standards, is, is almost nothing. But at the same time, uh, that company does need to have, like you say, uh, a good amount of cash to be able to do, to provide that money and sustain that so that it's not like one month you get a, a, a you know, good check, but then the month after you're pretty much fired and made redundant. Um, how do you think that companies can provide, create a fertile ground where where the business can flourish more than it already is, whereby the staff can get paid more if they are underpaid, without destroying basically the company with that? It's a difficult one because... Um some trainees want to engage and mm -hmm. want to get more involved mm -hmm. um, and are eager and hungry to do more. And mm -hmm. those ones need to be recognized and encouraged. Mm -hmm. There are, of course, other workers who are just very happy mm -hmm. to come in, sit down, mm -hmm. spend, make buttonholes all day long. Yeah. And go home again. Yeah. And they don't want to do anything else. And they don't mm. want the responsibilities of dealing with any of that. It used to be quite interesting when we'd do a big wedding dress, we'd mm. often invite the hands up from the workroom to come and meet the client and mm. see the finished dress. Mm -hmm. Now, you'd have thought that they'd be thrilled and excited to get up there and have a look. Yeah, yeah. The but opposite. Often it was an absolute struggle to get them yeah. out of the workroom and upstairs. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. No, it's a, I don't want to no, I don't want to do that. I feel embarrassed. It's awkward. I don't want to do that, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you, I found it so odd that they, mm -hmm. they didn't want to get up there and, and see it. But they didn't want to have to deal with that side of the business. Mm -hmm. They were perfectly happy doing what they were doing in their workroom amongst mm -hmm. themselves. And they didn't want to have to do the front of house stuff, which is yes. perfectly fine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, I was. Uh, I I kind of like thought that because uh, obviously, if if you are a, a uh, uh, what you call it, um, 
I can't think of the word. But if 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 you are a tailor who has had years of experience, you 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 can bring value. Um, you are very productive. You can train others. Um, it's easy. It's a lot easier to justify a higher wage for someone like that than someone who is just in their first three weeks of training. And and in in that aspect, I think the deal is a little bit um, kind of like it's it's a weird deal because it's something like from the student's end, it's like, you pay me what London is charging me for living costs in return for the time that you have to invest in me and the intention that you have to give me. Yeah, and and without me being knowledgeable or as productive as a senior tailor, as a qualified tailor, let's say. and I sympathize uh, for with the businesses in that spe- uh, in that aspect because it is very difficult to to justify that. But then, how can you train someone if they are not being paid? So, okay. <clears throat> um, one other question I'd like to ask you about Hardy Amy's is what happened to Hardy Amy's? Why did Hardy Amy's fade away? And because I, I believe that this will happen inevitably with some other Savile Row companies or other tailoring companies that are well established and couture companies. Um, do you have a, a, a theory or, or observations that you think? I, I Life changed. Life changed. That was the major problem. Life changed. I mean, when I was first designing at Hardy Amy's in 7980, we, mm-hmm. we used to design morning dresses afternoon dresses, cocktail dresses. I mean, Mm -hmm. who the hell wears a morning dress anymore? Who wears an Mm -hmm. afternoon dress? I mean, uh, life has changed. I mean, where do you wear a great big ball gown anymore, apart from a Met Gala? Um, Mm -hmm. All of those social situations changed. Fashion, I always say, is social history reflected. And, And couture houses existed and provided... Um, provided clothes for a clientele who lived a certain lifestyle. Well, that mm-hmm. lifestyle has gone, mm-hmm. no longer exists. So people don't need or want those clothes. They're pointless. When I, first, uh, when I was first appointed as design director, I did my first collection and I deliberately sorted, I wanted to, I wanted to impress Hardy. Um, mm-hmm. And I did a fabulous, I think, a fabulous collection, very beautiful collection with wonderful double fast coats with matching wool crepe dresses underneath them and amazing picture hats. And it's one in white and one in yellow and one in turquoise blue. They were fabulous. Mm-hmm. The show was beautiful. Mm-hmm. We didn't sell anything. Right. And that was the problem. It was mm-hmm. all very well doing these beautiful couture pieces which were amazing and I loved doing it Mm -hmm. but I was also responsible for the bottom line and I was responsible for the turnover so Mm -hmm. if I wasn't getting any turnover from these sorts of clothes Mm -hmm. I realized I had to change tack I see and wasn't that I didn't like doing that I loved doing that Mm -hmm. but in 96 that -hmm. was becoming irrelevant Mm. It must have feel terrible. Um, well, it was sort of it was sort of sad, but then also a challenge. Okay, how, yes. can, I, how can I reinvent this and mm-hmm. still be true to couture techniques and still be true to the Hardy Amy's style, but mm-hmm. come up with things which were more modern? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that was that was the important thing. And I remember having a terrible screaming match with Hardy over hats. <laughs> what happened there? Oh, I hadn't shown any hats in the collection. And I said, oh, no. well, no one wears hats anymore. Yeah. So <laughs> there's no point showing them. And he said to me, oh, don't be so ridiculous. He said, I've just been to the Duchess so-and-so's memorial service at Westminster Abbey, and everyone was wearing a hat. <laughs> I said, well, of course they were, Hardy, but that's not real life. Right, right, right. Okay, uh, I'd like to present you with an idea to understand the situation better. Um, you said one of the reasons uh, that... Hardy Amy's as a company faded away was that life changed. Now there there is a there is a business cliche and I don't even know to what extent this is true but I think it has some validity and you know about this it it's it's the cliche of you come up with something and sell it to people who actually don't need it but you market it in a way so that they feel like they need it etc etc. Do you think that tailoring companies or couture companies that have now uh, that are now struggling with because life changes, the way people dress change. They struggle with that one particular aspect of creating new markets for the products that they are designing and developing. Or do you think that that's completely irrelevant and and uh, it's really the clientele and the way they dress and the things that influence them, which influences the couture company or the tailoring company? Oh, absolutely, totally that way around. That is absolutely the way around it is. I mean, uh, couture houses are merely reflecting what's going on, reflected what was going on in society. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You can't, a couture house can't force people to wear ball gowns. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. They want them, they'll come and ask for them, and you, you can do them. So, absolutely, I think that's the way around of, of dealing with that. Um, mm-hmm. Hardy had always had this theory, a menswear theory, that um, <clears throat> menswear evolved and the most formal parts of menswear dropped off the top and then the next right. garment came forward so he mm-hmm. would go back to uh, he started off at the riding jacket in mm-hmm. the 1790s as mm-hmm. the first sort of tailored suits right you had a jacket and matching trousers going through of course to the frock coat in the victorian mm-hmm. times and then um, you had Edward Prince of Wales mm-hmm. wearing um, a lounge suit and mm-hmm. bringing in a tuxedo jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, and the frock coat dropped off the end. Mm-hmm. And no one, hardly anyone wears, no one wears it anymore. You don't yeah. see frock coats around. Um, so the lounge suit sort of stepped up. Um, mm-hmm. White tie and tails, again, was the most mm-hmm. formal hardly ever worn at all anymore. I mean, I don't know if you've ever made a tail suit. No. 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 So, I mean, that's dropped off. Um, mm-hmm. It keeps on moving up. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> unfortunately, I think we're almost there. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I mean, how often do you wear a dinner jacket these days? Not often. Not often, no. Uh, definitely not for dinner. No, no, exactly, exactly. So, you know, that's almost fallen off the end. Yes. Um, so we're just left with the lounge suit. Hmm. And I think, unfortunately, that's teetering on the brink as, mm-hmm. as other forms of clothing 
more casual mm. clothing, sportswear clothing is coming through and replacing. I mean, you, mm-hmm. for instance, you see people now turning up at the Oscars in yes. an evening suit and a pair of trainers. Yes, yes. Yeah, you know, yeah, how yeah. is it going to be before someone turns up with an evening jacket, black mm-hmm. joggers and trainers? Yes. And then yeah. someone's going to turn up in a bedazzled tracksuit, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's where it's going to go, I suspect. I'm not yes, so happy about it, but that's, you know, what happens. Yes, they do. Have a, although I do like the name Bedazzled Tracksuit. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does sound very powerful. So um, so as, as we are kind of like um, concluding, it, it is the case that clients very much so influence and pretty much dictate to some extent what the couture companies and tailoring companies are making um, because the influence i guess of tailoring and couture companies is not that extensive as maybe a uh, a tech company that also happens to organize 20 other events which which have you at the center of it so so okay um if if we go on a smaller scale and we talk uh, about just clients and 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 how they influence the process you've you've dealt with a, a plenty of clients who were so yeah <laughs> yes exactly so so if if you would boil down all your experiences with with the clients uh, that that you've worked with what in what fundamental ways do you think a, a client influences not only the individual who's making for them, but also the process of design and, and creation. And to some extent, a large number of clients influencing the company itself, the specific clientele spe- to the specific company. Um, I think in my experience, I mean, the two things, working for Hardy Amy's and then working for myself, mm-hmm. um, Hardy Amy's as a brand, had a style and a point Mm -hmm. of view. So if a client came in to ask for a dress, Mm -hmm. whatever I did would be within the house style. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember on one occasion, a bride coming in and she wanted this very, very frilly, fluffy dress. And there was a designer back then who was called Gina Frittini and she did Mm -hmm. these huge fairy tale fluffy dresses with masses of frills and everything all over. And I just said to the client, look, you ought to go to Gina Fagini mm-hmm. because this isn't our style. Mm-hmm. I learned pretty early on that there was no point taking on those jobs because right. every single thing I did, which I felt was improving the dress, mm-hmm. the client felt was making it worse. Right. right so there was right. no point going there because she was going to lose money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, do you think there is a way to prevent that? Well, yes, like, suss, suss it out early on and make sure that you know the client mm-hmm. understands what mm-hmm. your style is. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and if, if they've come to you because they want your style, or mm-hmm. whether they come to you just because they want you to make them something. I see, I see, I see. That's, okay, okay. That's the difference, I think. Um, mm-hmm. That's what makes a couture house a couture house and not a dressmaking establishment. I see, I see, I see. Because a dressmaker will make whatever the client asks them to make. Yes, yes. Whereas a couture house will 
say, well, no, that's that's not a Hardy Amy's garment. That's not mm-hmm. what we do. So yeah. we're not, no, we don't do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And so, yes, uh, you were saying in the, the different ways that the uh, client influences the... So, so, you know, a client would come in, um, they... When I was working for myself, my my main client, she'd tend to send me an email mm-hmm. and just say, usually come in September after she'd been away for a holiday over August. You know, she'd mm-hmm. be thinking about her wardrobe and say, mm-hmm. oh, I need, I've got gaps in my wardrobe. I need this and I need that and I need something else. So mm-hmm. she'd give me a rough parameter of I need these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So then it'd be up to me to come up with ideas. Um that would fill those briefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, I, my ideas that would fill those briefs. So I would then go mm-hmm. off and I would select fabrics and I would design things which I liked, which I thought were appropriate, and I would then sell them to the client. Mm-hmm. So yes, the client influences what you're doing. And of course, you're, you're designing in those instances. And a lot of times when you're working in the couture, you're working with clients who have been with the house or with you for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of my clients I'd worked with for 30 years. You get mm-hmm. to know them very well over that period yes. of time. And you know yeah. the colors they like, you know the sort of fabrics they like, you know their lifestyle, you know the sorts of styles they like to wear. So mm-hmm. that informs your, your designing mm-hmm. as you move mm-hmm. forward. Do you think that a, a a couturier or a tailor or a designer knows better what looks what 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 the client should be wearing uh, not only in terms of appropriateness for the event but also like hey based on my vision and my understanding of design um, color form texture all of that these are the things that will make you look good even if the client doesn't agree with them? Do you think that that level of, um, I don't want to call it authority, but that level of uh, specialization really has to be there present during the process at all times? Or do you think that if the client feels bad in something, even if it makes them look good, they just shouldn't be wearing it? Oh, of course. And if, if in the end, if you can't persuade the client, if you can't bring the client with you on the journey, mm-hmm. then you've failed mm-hmm. as a designer, as a couturier, or as a tailor. If you can't yeah. bring the client along on the journey, then that's mm-hmm. no good. One of the, the best parts of my job, I always felt, was a client would come in, invariably it'd be the mother of the groom rather than mother of the bride. She was feeling, you know diminished by the whole process and you know second best and all the rest of it and and you could then you know design an outfit for her to flatter her figure um mm-hmm. use a great color which would make her look good and then fit it beautifully and you could see fitting after fitting after fitting how she grew in confidence and mm-hmm. and happiness and at the end of it when she finally puts the final dress on you can see them beaming with delight because they can see themselves looking good and that's mm-hmm. that's what i think a couturier's job is to to make mm-hmm. that happen and that's the best part of my job 
Yes, yes. What do you think um, are are the crucial things that one must know about to be able to give sound advice on style and and what fits the personality or the character of that person best? Um. Because we both know that just just because someone knows how to make a suit or a dress doesn't mean that they would make the, the right most... suit or the right yes, dress. Yes, 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 exactly. Thing. Making yeah. the right suit and the right dress with the right collar and the right length. Absolutely, yes. That, that absolutely is, is, I think, recognizing the client and dealing with the client that, that you are, you, you know, you're presented with. And I think... Mm-hmm. That's particularly where where couture is so useful because, of course, each garment is made individually for that individual person. So uh, uh, to spe- to specify, when you say individually, you don't mean just another suit in a different fabric. You oh. mean individually, specifically yeah. from scratch. Yeah. From scratch, exactly. That's the that's the essence of couture. Yeah. And, 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 and I have to add another layer of specification. Mm-hmm. You don't mean the pattern is made from scratch. You mean the design of the garment is yeah. made from scratch. Exactly. Yeah. Because the client's body informs mm-hmm. the design process. Right. Because I can remember a friend locally wanting me to make her a trouser suit. And mm-hmm. I had up the stand for her, so I had her replica to start working on, and I, st- I designed the trousers suit. But when I started putting the cloth on the stand, because mm-hmm. of her particular figure, I suddenly realized that in actual fact, I could drape it in a more interesting way than I had actually designed because of her particular figure. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't mm-hmm. have worked on anyone else necessarily, but because of her figure, it worked mm-hmm. on her. So that then became a particularly individual garment for mm-hmm. that particular person. And mm-hmm. similarly, I had other clients, one client who was um, quite dropped on one side. Mm-hmm. And it always used to amuse me. I used to think, well, if anyone ever takes any of these jackets, they go, oh, she always looks so fabulous. I want her jackets. <laughs> well, if they'd put her jackets on, they would look terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't have fitted anyone else. Apart mm-hmm. from her, mm-hmm. and, and that's that's the magic of the couture. That's the magic of that individuality that you can just make things particularly for that one particular person. Yes, yes. So I th- I think this is a great uh, kind of like uh, route to take. So tailoring, bespoke tailoring, is also made for the individual, but it isn't couture. So no, you don't have. You don't have that constant changing of, of the design all the time. You have you have the cut of a bespoke jacket, which hasn't actually changed much in over a hundred years, maybe even longer. That that lounge suit jacket that was worn by uh, Edward back in nineteen hundred or nineteen hundred and five is exactly the same jacket that's being cut now. Okay, with proportion changes and all the rest sure. of it but it's very much the same mm-hmm. cut. So you have a different challenge in a way from the challenge mm-hmm. I have, because mm-hmm. you have to make that classic cut work on everybody, mm-hmm. whereas I can make different cuts, completely mm-hmm. different jackets, 
for every single individual peculiar mm -hmm. shape I'm presented with. So, mm -hmm. but we have different challenges. So, would you say that that is the main difference between couture and tailoring? Because um, if I would, if I would say, John, what re what is really the difference between, um, you know, handmade a handmade suit made by a tailor and a handmade suit made by a couturier? What, what you know? How do I understand the differences between couture and tailoring? I think I think that if you look at those two garments, there's very little difference in the finished product. It's the mm -hmm. process by which you get there. Okay. Because your bespoke garment is drafted flat on the mm -hmm. table. Um, mm -hmm. and that's how you create from measurements your starting point. Yes. Whereas yes. the couture, we start the other way around and we mm -hmm. pad up a stand to represent the client and then start working on that in three dimensions to create the garment. So mm -hmm. the starting points are different. But so why why would you say that that pro, I mean why can't uh, maybe a silly question but why would it would a couturier not be able to to start from a flat pattern and and why do they usually drape? Because I feel that you can create a much better garment, mm -hmm. woman, mm -hmm. by draping it on the stand than you can by mathematically flat drafting it. Is that because of the complexity of the figure? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's one of the differences, I think, because, mm -hmm. um, because women have busts. Yes, yes, yes. And men don't, as such. Yeah. Um, yeah. The suppressions you have to deal with within women's mm -hmm. wear are so much bigger most mm -hmm. of the time than they are with men. You know, yes. you've, got, you've got a bust measurement, which could be very big, going down to a small waist and coming back out again to a larger hip measurement. Mm -hmm. Well, men aren't like that, mostly. Mm -hmm. You've got a, a, a more, you don't have as much variation. Um, mm -hmm. Because again, with a woman, you can have a woman who's got, I don't know, a 36 inch bust measurement. Mm -hmm. She may not have much bust. Mm -hmm. She may have a very broad back and, mm -hmm. and, and, and a small bust. Mm -hmm. Or you could, mm -hmm. in the opposite way, have yeah. a client who's got a tiny frame and a miniature mm -hmm. back and mm -hmm. then a very large bust on the front. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. trying to do that flat is, is, mm -hmm. is difficult. So mm -hmm. it, it, uh, certainly in, in my world, working in my world, um, mm -hmm. every single garment was draped on the stand and every mm -hmm. you know every time it was approached the same way so it's the way i grew up it's what i know um mm -hmm. and and it's what i'm comfortable with and, mm -hmm. and i understand that process because it was the process i was i was taught and grew up with yes yes that that makes sense so you you could say that somehow the fact that and i and i guess that couture developed the way it developed because it was catering mainly for, for, for feminine figures mm -hmm. and females. Yeah. And so had it been the other way around, and w w if it was catering for more men, then maybe the, the process of, of production would also have been different. Yes. Because <clears throat> I don't think okay. there wouldn't be that vast variation. And whereas, mm -hmm. you know what it's like if you try and persuade a guy to have a three-button suit rather than a two-button suit... Yeah, yeah, two weeks to decide whether that's too much <laughs> for them to deal with or or not. 
you know, oh, I'm yeah. not sure. There's no other guys <laughs> in my office who've got a three-button suit. I'm not sure I can do that. I think that's <laughs> uh, that's too much. I'll, I'll, I'll stick with the two buttons. Whereas, of course, in the women's wear, yeah. if you show a woman the same jacket she had last season, mm-hmm. so we can change the colour. Mm-hmm. They look at and you go, but I've got that jacket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, want yeah, that jacket. I want a new jacket that's a different yeah. shape, different yeah. style, and a different color. Mm-hmm. So it's a completely different sort of way of looking. Why? At why do you think that is? <laughs> that's a big question. I don't know the answer to. I do not know um, why that's the case, but. Um, it was uh, certainly at Hardy Amy's every season, you had to come up with a new jacket, mm. a new design, something that was different from what you'd had last season. So mm. the sales ladies had come out with their clients and say, look, this is a new jacket, this is, this, you know, and it's not the same as the one you had last season. So there's a reason for you to buy this one because it's different. Mm. And whereas making it three buttons rather than two was not going not gonna to make it. Yeah, yeah. I have a question about uh, about mastery, and the question is something. Well, I'll, I'll give an explanation, and then I'll ask the, the specific question. So, y- you know that if if you really really want to become good at something, you have to single out one task almost, and then just do it for years and years and years and years until you become a magician in it, and then. If you have become a magician in it, then maybe you can focus on something else. It's, the, it's like, you know, a piano player mm. doesn't play all the instruments. They just, they yeah. may be able to play other instruments, but they just play the piano all the time. So based on that, I see men's tailoring being, you know, quite limited in the design of the garment. Um, a very good... Um, let's say, a very good activity that allows you to perfect a suit because you're, a, you're either a trouser maker, coat maker, or a cutter, mm-hmm. and you're pretty much doing the same design over and over and over. And with couture, I, it seems to me from the outside, as an outsider who doesn't know much of, about couture, it seems that the designs are con- constantly changing, which then requires a different construction most of the time. Then the figure is is va- varies a lot on top of the designs, and so are the fashionable fabrics and and the materials being used, plus what you say how society dresses. How does the process of mastery work in that sense, where you can't focus on just one thing and everything is changing? You've got to be a jack of all trades. You have to. So, so if if you so if when you, I when I'm working when I was working. I, I loved that. I don't think yes. I could do what you do. I think it would drive mm. me insane. <clears throat> I loved making a tailored jacket for two weeks. Mm-hmm. I'd want to make a chiffon dress next. Yes, yes. Because it's different. Mm-hmm. And it would require different skills and a different mindset and handling is different. Mm-hmm. And then once I've done that chiffon dress, then I'd quite like to make a wool coat. Mm-hmm. Because again, it's different. And that's what I love about what I've done is that mm-hmm. it can constantly change and you're constantly doing different things. You know, you're making a bias cut satin evening dress one week and then doing a, mm-hmm. a Donegal tweed tailored jacket the next. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, that, I, I like that because it mm-hmm. allows me to do different things. I mm-hmm. don't 
I don't like producing the same thing time and time and time again. I find mm -hmm. it boring. I used to work with a wonderful fitter at Hardy Amy's called Manon Raymond. She, mm -hmm. she was fabulous. She taught me so much. And she had initially started working with Madeleine Vionnet in Paris in 1926. Right, right. So she had a great pedigree. Um, mm -hmm. And she, uh, the lady, Madame Petit, who taught her at Madeleine Vionnet, had been trained by Monsieur Worth who began the whole couture nonsense in Paris back in the 1850s. So wow. there's a link right the way back, which was wonderful. But Raymond only ever liked making one sleeve. One sleeve? Yeah. Do you mean one sleeve on a garment or one type of sleeve? One sleeve. So she'd, she'd make the one sleeve and perfect it. And then she'd give the sleeve to one of the hands uh. and say, right, now you copy it. Because she wasn't interested in making the other one because right. it's boring. What she wanted to do was make the the first sleeve, the you know, perfect mm -hmm. that. Once it was perfected, yes. she wasn't interested anymore. She passed mm -hmm. it on to do the next, you know, okay, well someone else can now I've done it, that can be replicated mm -hmm. by someone else. You don't need me to make the replica. Right, right. I've so she was the, the model maker. Yes, I've done the hard work. I've come up with the, you know, the genius idea and mm -hmm. now you can copy it. Right, right. So so to to bring it back to to the mastery thing, I do still believe that if you are doing something for a very long time, even if it isn't the same thing, you are mastering something. And if I would say just just for 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 simplicity's sake, if you are a tailor, let's say if you are a coat maker, then what you master is coat making. If you are a couturier, let's say on the production side, not the design side, on the production side, but you're making all these different garments all the time, what is it that you master? Likely, you have to master it all, I guess. I mean, mm -hmm. you have to, you have to. Uh, Raymond always used to say, "You must be the master of your fabric." The master of your fabric, right, right. You must control your fabric. If you, if the fabric controls you, you've lost the plot. So mm -hmm. you must be in charge of the fabric. So mm -hmm. um, that would be important that you, because then you can make the fabric do what you want it to do. So The master of construction. Well, and because often the fabric is the construction. You're working on. Oh, on, right. That's also an interesting. You're, you're working in Tafta or Grogram mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. you, in the couture, you're, the starting point is the fabric. The fabric mm -hmm. dictates the design, the fabric dictates what it's going mm -hmm. to be. As soon as you pick up that piece of fabric, you can immediately, well, I can immediately see what mm -hmm. it could be because yes. of what the fabric does. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's that's the starting point. And Hardy always used to say, dear boy, honor your fabric. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. in other words, use the beauty of the fabric, use what the fabric has to enhance the garment and to make a beautiful thing. Don't mm -hmm. chop the fabric up into tiny little pieces and machine it all back together again. And then mm -hmm. you lost so much of what is beautiful in that fabric. It's very. It's a very interesting point because from what I've experienced is that tailors really uh, have a way of constructing their suit 
and as soon as a fabric doesn't work well with that construction they start to blame the fabric and kind of like curse the fabric yeah what you're saying is completely the opposite it's like mm -hmm. your construction should serve the fabric not the fabric the construction yeah. pretty much yeah absolutely and that is very inspiring i think because that's where you can be creative as a tailor because you know there is this uh, uh but almost you like... do that to an extent with tailoring i mean you can make a decision okay i'm gonna i'm gonna make this as an unstructured jacket it's going to be unlined i'm not going to fully canvas you know i'm going to because of the fabric or the yes. you want to make so you do you do make decisions you don't always always mm -hmm. go right this is going to be a fully canvas jacket blah 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 blah, blah and it's going to be done like this you do make decisions well or, i th i, I, I makes the decision i don't know well i would say that if it's if it's made by a tailor or a company who is really strict on their house style then they wouldn't really change the the structure of the garment that much whether it's a soft jacket or a hard jacket um i've i've never seen a tailor say well you know i usually make uh, a garment like this but for this fabric i completely changed my my uh... sorry about that oh, go away <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, it's actually funny because it, uh, it it sometimes uh, will happen to me as well. So that's okay. No, but I've 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 never seen a tailor say, you know, well, you always make this style, but for this fabric, we chose to do something else. Because if if they decide to go online or or you know uh, do some something fancy, they they won't change that you know the canvas or the shoulder pads or the or the st overall style, but. But th that's kind of like, uh, I, I guess, where tailoring can become boring uh, for some. Um, I would like to see tailoring have a little bit more of that, um, well, I don't know what to call it, openness, like the, the openness that couture has, you know? Creativity that, it, that brings. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was, uh, I think I was around 16 yeah, I th when I was 16, I, I had a gap year because uh, I, I, I studied originally sound design. And and before I was kind of like accepted, there was there was one year where I wasn't accepted. And then in that year, I had a gap year. And me being very uh, interested in how computer games were made, I studied game design for a year. Wow. And and. In game design, there was a particular particular part which was about character design, and and how you design the, the the characters for a game, and so that links to character design in animation, but also character design in cinematic films, and what I kind of like always took on board was that knowing what the character of a film, for example, should look like based on their story and focusing on that helps the tailor to recognize the character that their clients have in and, and kind of like allow that to, to take the best form it can take. Mm -hmm. And to do that, one just cannot simply go with a house style. Uh, in, in tailoring at least you know there you have to be able to say sorry we do a, a soft shoulder for example but you would look ridiculous in a soft shoulder or or vice versa so you'd be better than so, somewhere else yeah yeah ex exactly exactly so i've always i've always said to 
friends who've asked me about tailors, tailoring, mm -hmm. tailoring. I said, well, you have to find the tailor that mm -hmm. makes the jacket you want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. the tailor makes his jacket. And it's not yes. going to that tailor and saying, well, I want this and I want that. Yeah. It won't happen. Yeah. He yeah, might yeah. say he'll do this and he'll do that, but you'll end up with his jacket because that's what they do. That yes, is the yes. jacket. So you need Absolutely. to find the right tailoring house that makes the right style mm -hmm. to suit you. Yeah, uh, yeah. To an extent, of course, that also happens in couture because, you know, if you came into Hardy Amy's, again, you get a Hardy Amy's style garment. Yes, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be a John Galliano. It wouldn't be a Alexander McQueen. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's not yeah. going to happen. That isn't there. True. So True. although there's... It looks like there's lots of variation within that mix. Mm -hmm. Again, there is a, a strong house style which which doesn't change. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, John, I, I've written down a few things uh, based on our conversation. I'd like to do a speed round with you. I, I, I have a, a few words, and if, if you can say in one word the first thing that comes up your mind, uh, we'll begin. So, are you ready? Yep. <laughs> All right. Okay. So hand skills. Very important. Essential. Very important. Okay. Theater. Um, I don't know what to say about that. No idea. Fashion designer. Fashion designer. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what to say to that. No idea. <laughs> okay. Okay. Style. Style, crucially important. More important than right. anything else. Right, right. Uh, the most inspiring couture house for you? Oh, God. Um, Balenciaga. Balenciaga. The original. The, or, well, yes. Yeah. What do you think of, of how it's currently doing? <laughs> I love the original. He was <laughs> genius. Amazing. I believe you. Um, glamour. In the eye of the beholder, it changes all right. the time. Right, right, right. So <clears throat> three crucial skills to master if you want to become a couturier. Patience. Patience, patience. Patience, patience. right. Um, the essence of couture. Personal, private luxury. Personal, private luxury. I like that. Beauty. Again, in the eye of the beholder, it changes all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I have two other things. Um, and if, if you want to elaborate on those two things, uh, feel free to do so. Why, why do you think that people like to make beautiful things? The, the ones who do like to make things, like to make them beautiful? For me... It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a passion, a desire to try and create something that's perfect mm -hmm. or as near mm -hmm. to perfection as I can make it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a ridiculous, endless chase because you never get there. Mm -hmm. um, and I always said the moment you make that perfect garment is when you stop because there's no uh, point in going forward anymore. 
mm-hmm. constant striving for this unachievable perfection. Right, right, right. And the other one is, why do you think that all things considered, people enjoy teaching other people? Why, why, do, why do we take pleasure in showing others how to do something, whether it's how to chop a, like a, an apple in, in four fantastic pieces or, or to build some construction or teach them some life philosophy or something? Um, I, the reason I taught and I started teaching was that I, like you, I wanted to pass on the skills that I had acquired over the years, which had been generously shown me by Mm -hmm. previous people that I'd worked with, like Manor Raymond and Mr. Michael and Ms. Mm -hmm. Rita and Hardy and Ken. I mean, all of those people who Mm -hmm. shared their knowledge and experience. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to pass that. I felt obliged to pass that on to to someone else Mm -hmm. so that it can... Mm -hmm continue to live and what you're doing at the moment, trying to um, get that jacket out there Mm. so that it won't Mm. die and people will um, be able to carry on and understand in the future whether they wear those jackets anymore or not, but at least they'll know where they came from and how they were made. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. I've got three more. So, um, Savile Row. Yes. Savile Row, um, quirky. Quirky. Oh, interesting. I've never heard that. <laughs> um, Hardy Amy's. Oh, Hardy Amy's. Uh, a complicated man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a very. Uh, um, he was. An, he was an amazing guy. Um, uh, he could be monstrous. He could be fantastic. He was. Mm. Um, he was an in, incredible stylist. Um, he had a really strong point of view, and he taught me so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, last but not least, John Moore. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I don't know. I've had a. I think I've been very lucky to have had a great career, and 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 to be. I've, been very lucky that I was part of Couture while it still existed in London. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist anymore, sadly. Um, mm-hmm. And there's very little Couture left in mm-hmm. the world. Um, so I'm thrilled that I, although I came in on the shirt tail of it right at the end, at least I got a glimpse into that world and um, mm-hmm. was able to experience it, which has been wonderful. Well, John, thank you very much for making the time today to speak to me. I and uh, love talking to you. I've learned a lot, and uh, I'm <laughs> looking forward to uh, to to see you in person soon. Indeed, lovely. Thanks thank you. Goodbye. And that was John. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to see more of John, you can follow the links to his Instagram and website in the description of this video. If you have any thoughts, comments, or questions, please let us know. And we sure hope to see you again in the next episode. Until then, bye-bye.